the old school growers to the casual readers of cannabis literature, most connoisseurs are familiar with the variety of written works from Ed Rosenthal. Surprisingly, Ed discovered cannabis later in life than most people do, but he immediately knew that this was going to be a lasting relationship. The effects Ed experienced from cannabis brought him a happiness and understanding of the world that only he can describe. At the earliest stages of his growing career, Ed was mistakenly harvesting and smoking the cannabis leaves, not knowing that it was the buds growers were after. From there, his resolve to learn more elevated his knowledge and led him to becoming a highly respected cannabis columnist, no pun intended. Ed is best known for his writing contributions to High Times, a magazine that he helped start. As a resident of New York City in the 70s, Ed was pretty blatant about his public cannabis consumption, but he described the atmosphere as tolerant for certain people. And what's not to like about cannabis? First time was uh, I was 21, and uh, we obtained some and tried it. And as soon as I tried it the first time, I realized that this was going to be a long-term relationship. And I felt that um, it uh, basically changed my outlook on life and my happiness quotient. And uh, so those were the first experiences. It just allows you to, to have different perspectives than the ones that society teaches us. It does that with everyone. It's, it's, I'm not alone in that. It happens with everyone. It, you know, um, it expands your consciousness in a way. You know, it was very early on, and uh, I had been boxed in by society's way of looking at things, and I was hiking in Hawaii. I was uh, alone on a trail. I'm looking around. And I realized, you know, that I'm totally alone. And I just felt a whole bunch of burdens, like mental burdens, just fall away from me. You know, just crumble. I felt like my brain was, like, freed, you know. And so that was a real incredible experience. But m most experiences are better with pot. I was always interested in plants and horticulture. So uh, from the time that I was a kid, I took classes in gardening. So it was very natural that once I met marijuana and uh, realized that it was going to be a significant part of my life, that uh, I would wish to grow it. I was working on Wall Street, and um, my position was at that time... Um, the assistant compliance officer for a firm called L.F. Rothschild. And uh, originally, I, I had been living on the Lower East Side, and that didn't, I didn't have space to grow. But my parents moved out of the apartment they had been in, and I took it over. And it was this giant uh, six-room pre-war building. So there was uh, plenty of space for me to uh, set up a grow, and that's what I did. And so uh, seeds were plentiful at that time in the 70s because uh, they were found in every uh, packet of marijuana included in the plant. There wasn't sense mass at that time, but just uh, cannabis that was coming from uh, Mexico or other countries of export. 
that's how I got started. I started by growing my own. My first grows would not be considered uh, that great at this point in time, but um, the lights that were most available, that were easily available, were fluorescent lights. And so those were easily obtainable. And uh, I had already had experience in growing plants because I had been a gardener in New York City. I, I had taken classes at the New York Botanical Gardens, and I had had a plot in the ground, and I had a lot of house plants. So I treat, you know, I didn't know much about it, and I treated it as I would treat other plants that needed a lot of light. And so I started with fluorescence and did a lot of things wrong. And then I realized that there was a flowering stage to it. And that at first we were just smoking the, the leaves and, and the leaves were stronger than the bud that they came from, you know? And then I realized, uh, oh, well, there's a separate flowering stage and that that's what we're looking for is the buds. At first, we were just smoking leaves. As I said, that wasn't too bad because the leaves were more powerful than the buds they came from because they you know, were so degraded by the time they got to the consumer. And then we discovered buds. At some point, I decided to do a little bit more research, right? And uh, I could read like um, something, for instance, um, the equivalent of of wiki would be uh, the Encyclopedia Britannica at one time because, you know, it was pretty complete. And I had a set of that and I had an old set and the older Britannica was um, before they were mass marketing, you know, for, for kids and everything. The older Britannica had, uh, it was very formal, but it had a lot more information than the newer editions had. And I had an old edition, so I was able to read about it. There's a, there's these harsh New York State laws, or there were, you know, the Rockefeller laws. But then there was New York City, and it just had a different attitude towards cannabis. You know, it wasn't the biggest thing. I mean, it was common, and the laws weren't enforced that much. So, as opposed to other areas in the state, New York City would be a fairly cool area to uh, be using cannabis. So one of the things about that was, um, you know, they just legalized in New York state. So you can use cannabis anywhere where you can smoke a cigarette. And um, that's just what I did um, 40 years ago or more when I was in New York. I never minded smoking on the street or, you know, there just was very little chance of an intersection with the police. Now, I understand that I have white privilege that other people might not have and might not have experienced it. But as far as white people in New York City, cannabis wasn't a big thing. In fact, um, there was this fellow, Mickey Caesar, who ran a dope supermarket in lower Manhattan. And he actually had off-duty police officers come to buy from him. You know, it was... uh, it was a cultural thing. Um, New York City had other problems. You know, the East Village was, you know, it was totally drugged out on psychedelics. And that continued for the last 40 years. Then uh, I decided to make uh, grow spaces for people 
uh, in terms of uh, having uh, discrete spaces. So I started uh, making those in New York City, and I went to uh, Rolling Stone magazine, which had, at that time, regional flyers. For instance, there was a flyer that was included in Rolling Stone for New York City. And I went there to try and get some publicity for this. And they said that, you know, uh, coincidentally, a fellow who was growing was doing a little article on how to grow and would I like to meet this fellow. And uh, we met and we decided to write a book together, which turned out to be Indoor Outdoor Marijuana Growers Guide. And that sold, it had uh, very high sales. And then we decided to do a second book, and that turned out to be more textbook-like Marijuana Grower's Guide. And that set us both off on um, life adventures. New York City has always been a melting pot of ideas and passions. It was there that Ed fell in with a group known as the Yippies. This collective of young adults spread expressions of political opposition and cannabis liberation across this nation at small grassroots rallies. The cannabis world in the 70s and 80s was a small one, and Ed seemed to have rubbed elbows with many of the names we know and celebrate today in cannabis culture. In addition to his connections in New York, Ed had moved out to California. When he landed, he landed in San Francisco, where he stayed as the proverbial guy on the couch for a few months. Shortly thereafter, he became more active in politics and moved slightly north of San Francisco. From this new location in Oakland, Ed continued growing, writing, and sticking his nose in the air at authorities. I had visited California, and... I immediately realized that that was my home and that was in San Francisco. And I was staying with people who I didn't even know who put me up for months. And I realized that uh, politically I should be in Berkeley because, you know, I was pretty radicalized by the war. So I moved to Berkeley, um, you know, Berkeley and Oakland, uh, the only thing that differentiates them is a marker because it's one continuous urban area. And uh, the reason I moved to Oakland is because um, of a particular house that was offered. And uh, my co-author and I, by that time, we were doing okay uh, from the books. My co-author and I decided to move to buy this house that we saw that was in Oakland. I was just doing writing and political work. And I'd always been a loudmouth. And um, there are only legal repercussions if you're arrested, right? Well, I wasn't planning to be arrested. But we're talking about uh, the 70s and 80s, maybe, 70s, 80s, 90s. But during that time, Oakland wasn't worried about somebody's personal growth. That wasn't. You know, especially if they were white, but, you know. And then after 72, when it became decrimmed, if you were growing, but were growing for your own personal use, it was a ticketable offense. It wasn't arrestable. Or they might arrest you, but there there was a hearing 
was called the Williamson hearing. And so it was based on this fellow who was arrested for cultivation. He said, oh, but, you know, personal use is ticketable, you know, uh, not, not arrestable. And um, I was growing this for my personal use. And the court agreed with that, and that became the Williamson hearings. So um, if you were arrested, you know, for a small cultivation, you could use that. And you were supposed to go get uh, some sort of training not to use pot, but nobody went. It didn't matter. When you look at it, nobody else uses their real name. I'm the only person who did that. And I just didn't see the danger or um, I ignored the danger of it. But I, I, I never had any problems from that. I mean, well, I did have some banking and problems getting the post office box, but Congressman Delms, who was my congressman at the time, helped with those things. My co-author used a pseudonym, uh, Mel Frank, and those two names came from his two Siamese cats, Mel and Frank. But uh, I was the only one, well, I had a book out with my real name on it, and I was a real person who went to these events. And all the other authors, including my co-author, were hidden. You know, they they were all hidden. You know, they, they're hiding behind fake names, you know. Like uh, George Van Patten became Jorge Cervantes. And, you know, like all of them were scared. I mean, they were scared of their shadow. And none of them would do any political work. They were all ready to write a book about it. But who would stand up for the people who were following their advice? None of them stood up for it. Nobody else did it. And that's why I sort of stood out, because I was willing to put a real face and a real name behind that. Nobody else had the dignity to do that. It's like you're writing a book about cannabis and about how to grow it, and you don't think that you have a political responsibility. Those people. They didn't do anything to legalize it. They were just willing to profit from it, but they weren't willing to stand up for what they believed. I mean, George would write about it once in a while, but that was a lot of bullshit. You know, it was just palette of words. It wasn't real action. So, and all of them, I mean, all the other writers, like Kyle Cushman, you think Kyle Cushman's his given name, but... While I was in New York, I fell in with a group that became the Yippies. And, um, you know, that included um, Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin. But there was a generation, when I say a generation, four years, there was a group of people that were a little bit younger than them that when they became too much of celebrities and got co-opted and stuff, this breakaway group went down to... uh, Miami uh, for the convention, for the Republican convention, and um, actually took over the Yippie contingent. And um, that included uh, people like Tom Fersad, who co-founded High Times. Uh, So the Yippies started these smokings, where we'd have these rallies with music and politics and pot. And we did it all over the country. We did it in Nevada. It was very interesting. I met the uh, police chief of um, uh, Reno, 
And um, he said, well, you don't want to meet me at the police station, I know. So we'll just meet at this coffee shop. And we each bought our own coffee. And he said, look, no needles. I said, if we see a needle, we'll take care of it before you ever get to see it. So he understood what the policy was. He said, go right ahead, do your thing. And so, you know, I had a lot of free time. So I also, um, I would travel around to rally after rally and also sell books at those rallies. You know, I want to mention some other yippies. You know, Steve D'Angelo, he came out of the yippies. And uh, Debbie Goldsberry was educated politically by yippies. Now, she's gone off in her own direction, but the yippies were a powerful force in the U.S. um, in terms of molding people's relationship with cannabis because we had these smokings, and smokings did several things. They were political, but they were also social in that you look around and you realize you're not the only freak. You're not the only one. There's a whole group, you know, and it gives you a different kind of attitude about things. And then uh, another was that it was a political organizing tool. And so everywhere we went with these smokings, it was like starting little cancers all over the country regarding cannabis. And that really helped to change, ultimately, to get a core group that helped to change people's or society's opinion about cannabis. High Times, that was in 74 that I started that. Yeah, yeah, I got into that. And then um, Tom Fassad and I had a falling out, and he took that over. Along with another fellow by the name of Ron Lichty, who dropped out of that and became a computer person. Main interest was computers. High Times, it was cannabis-oriented, cannabis and psychedelics, and a little bit of cocaine. And there were a couple of cocaine covers. But remember, cocaine was like mainstream in the 80s and 90s. It was just mainstream. I don't feel it's mainstream now. Yeah. So they did a few covers, but it was really really about pop and secondarily psychedelics. Despite the extraordinary measures of being deputized by the city of Oakland, California to legally grow his medicinal cannabis, Ed Rosenthal was arrested and convicted of multiple felonies for doing so. Unlike many of his predecessors, Ed only served a single day in jail over it. Never one to shy away from speaking his unfiltered mind, Ed was irate with the punishment and he let the world know. For Ed, there was never a delineation between politics and cannabis. All hope is not lost in the eyes of this cannabis icon when it comes to the future. Ed has a positive outlook towards federal legalization. He believes that the ability for home cultivation will encourage more plant breeding efforts by common growers, which he feels has the ability to protect genetic diversity. You know, I've just had the same life for the last many years, like doing political work, doing some writing, doing some growing, doing some consulting. That's been, you know, what I've been doing. But, you know, I still have three felonies, three federal felonies. I served one day, time served. 
one juror felt intimidated by the judge, and uh, she reported it. And so I had a second trial. And the thing about that trial was this, that I had already done my time so that they could not give me more time. So they put me on trial just to get me. They couldn't put me in prison. Yeah, you know, you can't punish a person twice. Well, you know, when when I was I was deputized, right, and um, the city attorney says to me that um, as long as you obey the city laws, you're free from prosecution by the federal government because you're named an officer. And the judge said that you would have to be able to enforce the laws. I mean, he. He used a roundabout way so that I could be prosecuted, a roundabout argument. And basically, he was very influenced by the government. He was an apparatchik of the government in much the same way that a Nazi uh, judge was an apparatchik of the state. And that's what he was. He knew he was there to do the state's bidding, so he would not allow a fair trial. He wouldn't allow the jury to hear that I was appointed an officer of the city. He wouldn't allow any mention of medical. And then he got himself into a conundrum. And it was this, that he and his wife, Cindy, were socialites. You know, they were hanging out with San Francisco society. And they were being shunned. So that's why I got one day in prison. It wasn't because he saw the light or anything. It's how could he get himself out of the dilemma that everybody thought he was a thug and a miscreant, basically, which he is. And um, it, it was personal pressure by his wife, specifically. And I believe that there were drug problems in his family that had personally affected him, and he should have recused himself. And, uh, you know, I recently had a discussion, you know, it was 40 years since uh, 2.15. So there was this recent get-together. And actually, somebody who knows the judge socially said, well, he did you a favor. And then I said to her, well, look, think of it. Let's say he had given me some time. What would have happened? He would have been totally shunned by his community, you know, these socialites. You know that. And she said, yeah, yeah, I suppose so. And if for the first time in all this time where she thought he was such a good guy doing it for society and everything, no, he was a creep and he was just trying to get out of a situation that he had placed himself in. He's still a creep. But, you know, I still have three felonies, three federal felonies. And I'm the only one who knew that I was not going to go to prison. I believed it because of a movie that I'd seen called Little Big Man. It was with Dustin Hoffman in it. And Dustin Hoffman is being sort of mentored by this blind Indian chief. And it's the Battle of Little Bighorn where, you know, there was this big massacre, right? And the chief says to Dustin Hoffman, today is a good day to die. And he walks across the battlefield unharmed, as does Dustin Hoffman. And I had that vision of walking through this battlefield, but not being injured. And that was my vision. And anybody who disagreed with it, friends who had that 
oh, I'm so sorry, soon to be in prison look, I got rid of that. And then there were a whole bunch of people who I've never seen again, who I thought had been my friends, but when time came, you know, for friends, they disappeared. Well, when they came back, you know, and wanted to resume the friendship, I had no use for those people either. And then there were groups of people who I never saw before or after the trial, but just during the trial, but they were terrific support group. But my basic contention was no matter what they did, they were not going to put me in prison. And basically I was right. I shocked everybody. And then, you know, at the end of the uh, trial, you know, everybody's outside and the press is all there and all these people from these different organizations are praising the judge and how great he was, you know, that he had that terrific insight to only give me one day. And I got up and I said, this judge did me no favors. And then I said, no one should go to jail for cannabis. And it was all very vociferous. And I said a few other things about the judge. Nothing insulting, but nothing in like a curse or anything like that so that everything would be able to be uh, on the air. And so after they did that little dance circle around the judge and everything, I destroyed that. And at the time, a lot of people said that uh, that was really inappropriate, but it wasn't. And ultimately, people realized that it wasn't, that this was not a kumbaya moment. I mean, the fact that I wasn't in prison, that in itself was not a victory. The victory is changing laws and that this judge was just part of the state process. So, you know, you can't remove cannabis from the rest of the culture of the country. And I wouldn't only say the culture, but the politics. And right now, the politics is the most scary that I've ever seen. Cannabis was like um, like vaccines. So people took a position on it depending on what their politics was. And one of the reasons why Nixon and the Republicans were opposed to it was exactly that they thought that it would change people politically. I don't think that you can really separate cannabis from the politics. It's the same way like you would think that Vaccines would just be a science issue, right? But we found out that they're not just a science issue, right? So this is sort of the same thing. So I can't separate cannabis from the rest of it. And to me, the legalization of cannabis isn't a good trade-off for losing all of our other rights. And the thing that is most disheartening about that is take a state like Oklahoma where medical cannabis won by 70%. There are shops all over. It costs only $2,500 to get a license to set up a cannabis business. And you have to have the license and a lease or own property. So on the other hand, they voted double digits for Trump. So the whole premise of cannabis was that, you know, cannabis is going to allow people to break free from that box that they've learned to think in that we talked about right at the beginning of the program and break through that and that a new politics would open up. And that just hasn't happened. It's very disheartening.
See, I mean, cannabis was a goal to opening people's minds. And if they're smoking cannabis and voting for Trump, I don't feel that's working well. So think of it this way. 69% of the people voted for Trump. 70% of the people voted for cannabis. So that means that a good percentage of the people who voted for cannabis also voted for Trump. And the Democrats, they were scared of their shadow, so they tried to outdo the Republicans. Oh, we're more anti-drug. And who was one of the biggest anti-druggers? You know who it was? It was our president, Biden. He helped to bring in the terrible pot laws. He was one of the people. He was on the uh, one of the legal committees. He was one of the main people doing that. He's been wrong on every issue from the time he was a young congressperson. But uh, Biden was part of that old culture. He never got it. He never got it. Just like my brother. Had my brother been four years later, it might have changed him. And so that's what it was about. We're dealing with somebody who's pre-60s as president. The negative part of legalization is something that you inferred, which is, you know, the uh, alternative culture and that society uh, supported itself a lot from marijuana sales so that the money circulated more in the culture. And now, you know, it's to big corporations. Big corporations are collecting the money and it's going upward. But there's one thing, you know, let's take the tomato market. Now, tomatoes aren't regulated the way cannabis is. So it, it takes a little bit of deregulation. But, you know, that there are giant international corporations that grow and process tomatoes. Then there are big national farms, regional farmers, small farmers, gardeners selling to restaurants. and most tomatoes are actually grown by home growers. So the one positive side of legalization might be legal growing, you know, home growing, and that most of the cannabis may very well become homegrown. Let's say you wanted to breed a tomato plant. Well, tomatoes have what's called perfect flowers, and that means that they have both the male and the female on the same flower. It has a stamen and a stigma on the same flower. So if you wanted to grow, you know, breed tomatoes, you would have to go and painstakingly clip off or cut off one of the flower organs. And, you know, it's a difficult process to do so that you don't have a lot of home growers breeding tomatoes because it's just too much effort to do it. It's hard work. But with marijuana, you have separate male and female plants. So it's very easy to do controlled breeding. And you know that when you speak with marijuana growers, after the first few crops, they say, oh, I'm breeding this and I'm breeding that. So because cannabis is so easy to breed, there's always going to be people breeding it. Well, it's it's something that you hear all the time. People saying, oh, I'm, I'm breeding these plants, right? Well, but you don't hear them saying, I'm breeding potatoes. You don't hear them saying, I'm breeding corn. Only about 6% of seed plants have separate male and female plants. Almost all of the plants, like apple trees, each one of those flowers on that tree has a male and a female organ on each flower. Take a lily, 
very easy to see the male and female organs on the flower. But then there are some plants, for instance, begonias, and they have separate male and female flowers on the same plants. Makes breeding a little bit easier. But when you have separate plants, it's easy to separate the plants and do controlled breeding. So that's why it's so popular. You know, we, uh, from uh, prenatal onward, we're taught to look at life in a certain way, and depends on society what that way is. But we set boundaries, and the mind and the brain help to enforce those boundaries so that a lot of thoughts that might be in the brain never make it to consciousness. And uh, we're not aware of them because we've set certain boundaries. In any number of experiments, how two people might look at the same scene and emphasize different aspects of that same scene. And that's part of those boundaries. So what cannabis did, and Aldous Huxley talked about this in Doors of Perception, and what he said was that what psychedelics do is they make the brain inefficient at enforcing these boundaries. So all these thoughts come through to consciousness. So it builds your awareness in a way. So I think that some psychedelics do it in a wild way where all these thoughts are coming through so fast that you can't grasp them, that you know they pass through. But with cannabis, it's a slower process and you can actually uh, become more creative with its use. And what's not to like about cannabis? Yeah, I have a real problem. I'm using pot. I, oh, such a problem. I don't know how to stop. And don't forget to mention my book. I have a new book out, Cannabis Growers Handbook. Throughout his various works, Ed Rosenthal has always used his real name. It isn't a pseudonym that an anonymous author or advocate is hiding behind. This sort of open defiance is something Ed takes pride in. Ed has managed to stay relevant through many waves, bumps, and turns in what is now referred to as the cannabis industry. He is an author of over 30 books spanning four decades detailing the cultivation of cannabis, cannabis history, and also the emerging art of producing concentrates. Even casual readers of cannabis magazines will remember his Ask Ed column in the High Times magazine throughout the 80s and 90s. Ed Rosenthal has been important to the advancement of cannabis knowledge and legalization. At the age of 77, he shows no signs or interests of slowing down. Although his adventures are far from over, Ed has a well-deserved place in dope history. Ed has a new book available. It is titled The Cannabis Grower's Handbook, and it is available now at all finer book outlets.